Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, Do you hear what they are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read, Out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise? Then he left them, and he went out of the city to Bethany, and he lodged there. Now in the morning, as he returned to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves. And he said to it, Let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately the fig tree withered away. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither away so soon? So Jesus answered and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. I'm going to stop there for right now. I'm going to allude to some other passages, but I'm going to just stop right there. But I'm going to ask you a question. A few questions. Does anyone here believe in coincidence? Do you believe in coincidence? Do, do things just happen? Is there such a thing as chance? Good answer. I don't think there is. I believe that Scripture teaches us that everything is ordained by the hand of God, including me standing before you this morning. This year, I adopted an approach that my wife has been doing for a few years, and that is we read through the Gospels every year, but instead of just reading a chapter a day and then you wind up repeating it four times during the year, we, we read a chapter and you read that same chapter for four days before you move on and read the next chapter. This is the first year I've done that. And what I have discovered is that I actually glean more meat out of that chapter as I reread it for four days in a row. And just by coincidence, just by chance, today I finished reading for the fourth time Matthew chapter 21. Wow. And because of that, I was just really impressed, and I sat there and I said, wow, Lord, you know what? There is some good stuff here that I would really like to preach in a sermon someday. And a few minutes later, a text comes through from Charles. Hey, the water level's rising. I don't think I'm going to be able to make it today. I said, you know what? I think I could just extemporaneously share something today. He says, go for it, you know? <laughs> Well, apparently, today is this day, is that day, all right? So in our call to worship, we already read the first part of the chapter. And after Jesus entered Jerusalem, he went into the temple and he threw out the money changers and the merchants. We all know the story. 
To say that he got the attention of the leaders is probably the greatest understatement I could say. I mean, they were infuriated. The practice at the time was that pilgrims would come to Jerusalem every year to, to the temple, but rather than bringing their own offerings with them, they might die on the way, they would bring money. But the money that they brought was Roman money or the currency out there. It wasn't the shekel that was used in, in the, the temple. But you see, the leaders had an answer for that. They decided to set up an exchange, a bank in the temple. And the irony is they actually put it in the part of the temple known as the court of the Gentiles. If you go back, you'll remember that the promise to Abraham was that he and his offspring would be a light to the world, a light to the Gentiles. You know, it, it kind of reminds me of a story. I'm not going to go into it, but um, if you've ever seen the movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And when the, the one uh, guitar player, they ask him, well, why'd you sell your soul to the devil it's to play guitar? He said, well, I wasn't using it anyways. That was the attitude of the Jews. We'll just put the money changers and the merchants in the court of the Gentiles because eh, we're not really using it anyways. This isn't a religion for them, right? So Jesus comes in and he kicks them out. He overturns the tables. Money goes flying, scattered. Pigeons are probably flying loose. And that really infuriated the temple leaders. Why is that? Because they were getting a cut off the top. You know, the practice at the time was that they, they exchanged the currency, but they took a heavy vig to, to make that happen. And of course, those money changers gave a portion of that to the, the priests. To top matters off, the children and the people are shouting at the top of their lungs, Hosanna, son of David. They're recognizing that Jesus coming into the temple is the long-awaited king, the Messiah. And the chief priests didn't see it, or they didn't want to see it. They didn't like that. The people knew what the rulers did not, that Jesus was the longed-for Messiah. Wasn't he going to do anything to stop them, they cry? Well, he turns to Psalm 8 and he says, Haven't you read that out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, thou hast perfected praise or thou hast ordained praise, is another translation? I love that. Jesus' answer to all of their complaints, all of their uh, questions to him was always the word of God. So what did Jesus do next? After he cleans the temple, addresses the Jews, he leaves. He goes back to Bethany. What's the significance of Bethany? Anybody know? That's where Lazarus was raised. We kind of get the impression that whenever Jesus was in town, he hung out with Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. Good name, by the way. And and so he probably went back to their house. But the next day, he gets up and he's going back to the temple to teach. And on the way, it occurs to him, right, like Jesus just 
forgot that he was hungry? I don't think so, okay? He gives his disciples an object lesson that is so vivid, they're never going to forget it. He sees a fig tree, and he comes up to it and looks for some fruit to eat. What's the only problem with that? Anybody know? It's not the fruit season. It's out of season. It's not, the, it's not the fig tree's fault that there wasn't any fruit on the tree. Do we really think Jesus was that dumb? Lord, don't strike me, please. Of course not. It's an object lesson. So the disciples are amazed when it now, Matthew's account varies just a little bit. It makes no difference to the story. It isn't that he did it on the afternoon and then they came back the next day and it shriveled. But Matthew, and, and Matthew, remember, was a tax collector, right? He's used to exact details, right? I tend to believe that what happens here is, is, is probably the way it happened. It happened right then, instantaneously. The fig tree shrivels. And his disciples are like amazed. How, how did this happen? And Jesus says, well, you know, if you've got faith, you can say that mountain over there, just be cast into the sea and it will do it. But you, you can't doubt, you've got to believe it. But there's, a, there's an important point here. And the rest of this chapter, I believe, is illustrating what that point is. And that is the fig tree. The fig tree has a lot of symbolic meaning in the Bible. The fig tree stands for the nation of Israel. When Jesus says to them, may no fruit ever grow on you, Mark says it a little different. He says, may no one ever eat of your fruit again. What, what is Jesus doing? What happened the day before? He meets in the temple, and the chief priests and the scribes and everybody are dissing him, who's coming as their king. And it, I'm, not, I'm not saying it's the last straw, but I think God has been very patient with Israel. And Jesus' coming, even though we know it's God's plan that he's going to be crucified, this is kind of a last ditch to accept him. And they don't do it. Now, before I go on, let me just ask you, is, is anyone here feel bad for the fig tree that just got withered? Really? V, you're, you're nodding. Do you, do you kind of feel bad? Does it remind you of another tree or bush? that got shriveled up? Who? Jonah. Jonah. Yeah. And interesting, what was, what was Jonah supposed to be doing? Preaching to the Gentiles. Preaching to a Gentile nation who actually did what? Repented. They repented. The Gentile nation of... Or, city-state of Nineveh repented at the preaching of, of Jonah, and Jonah was upset about it. And Jonah had more sympathy for the fig tree 
than he did for human beings who were lost without God. I just thought that was kind of an interesting point. You know, God has this way. You know, he's, he's infinite, but at the same time, he, he has patterns. To say that God never does the same thing in the same way twice, he doesn't have to, but for our sakes, he does. There's these repetitious patterns that, that we see. And I believe that that, that that passage in Jonah is very, almost like a prelude to what happens here to, to the fig tree. So, because of their unbelief, Israel has been unfruitful. And in Jesus, Jesus is proclaiming that the torch, if you will, is about to be passed to another nation, the Gentiles. How do we know this? Well, look at what follows. And I'm not going to read it. You can read it for yourself. Um, in fact, I'm sure you've all read it for yourself. But test me and see if I'm telling you the truth here. So first, after Jesus' demonstration in the temple the previous day, the chief priests and elders come to confront him, and they ask him, by what authority is he doing these things? What things? By what authority he's doing what things? Well, the miracles, the teaching, all of these things. But not to be entrapped by them, Jesus does something that I think is just absolutely brilliant. He tells them that, okay, I'll answer your question, but first, answer mine. The baptism of John. Where was it from? What was it? So I can just imagine these priests and Pharisees and Sadducees and Levites and uh, scribes. It's, it's just a, a big mix mash of, of political religious parties at the time. They put their heads together and they say, you know, that's a tough question because um, if, if we say that, it w that John's baptism was from God, you know, you know he's going to ask us, then why didn't we believe him? But if we say, oh, it's, it was just of man. You know, the people think that he was a prophet. They're going to turn around and stone us. So they decide to take the easy way out, the coward's way out, and they say, well, we don't really know. Do you think that's true? Did they not know? I mean, these are the religious experts of the time. They knew the Word of God. What the Word of God said was running antithetical to what was in their own financial best interests. They had a vested interest in the status quo. So they decide, well, we're just going to kick the ball down, down the field. And they say, we don't know. And Jesus, he catches them in their lie. He says, he doesn't say, well, I don't know where my authority comes from either. I mean, that would have been kind of a sarcastic way to respond, but he doesn't do that. He says, neither will I tell you where my authority comes from. Do you know what the implication of that is? The implication is that Jesus knew that they knew what the authority of John was, but they weren't willing to stick their necks out and admit it. So he calls them on it. 
The next thing that Jesus does is he, he, he launches into telling some, par- some parables which illustrate the point that the baton of spiritual leadership is being passed off from Israel to another nation. First, there's the parable of the two sons, in which it's very clear that the son who initially says he won't obey the father and go out into the vineyard and work, but changes his mind and goes, represents the sinners, the harlots, that the religious establishment despised so bad. But the son who says, oh, I'll go, but he doesn't, is the Jewish leaders. In fact, in verses 31 and 32, Jesus says, after they answer that it's the first one who did the will of the Father, Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in a way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him, and when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. So what he's, what he's doing is, he's not pointing to another nation yet, but he's pointing to the, the so-called lost and saying they're the ones that the kingdom is really, is really coming to. But it doesn't end there. Next he tells the parable of the story of the landowner who lets his vineyard out to tenants who conspire uh, finally to kill the son so, who is the heir so that they might get the inheritance for themselves. But Jesus doesn't just interpret the parable. He asks them, what the landowners should do. And these Jewish leaders who are listening to this rightly reply, well, he should destroy those wicked men and let it out. Let what out? The vineyard. What's the vineyard? The vineyard is the kingdom. Okay? Should let the vineyard out to others who will honor that obligation. Jesus then uses their own words against them by quoting scripture to show the very scripture that we read earlier, that the, the builders were rejecting the chief cornerstone. In other words, God is about to do a new work and the Jews are being dropped as the main characters because of their unbelief. He tells them that the kingdom of God is being taken from them and given to a nation that will bear fruit, just like the fig tree. In verse 45, it says something that is so obvious it's profound. I mean, every time I read this, I chuckle. It says, Now when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived he was speaking of them. Wow! How perceptive is that, right? Of course he was speaking of them. He was telling them that all of their expectations and assumptions about religion, faith, The kingdom of God, everything about God was about to be overturned. Just like those tables in the temple. The parable of the vineyard even told how they were planning to kill him. And of course, we know what happened next. Jesus goes on later in that week to die on the cross 
for the sins of the world. And in the process, he defeated Satan and he established his true kingdom for eternity. So all this is nice background stuff. Maybe I've told you some stuff that you didn't know already. Maybe you already did. And you're asking, so what's, what's the import for us? What is the, what is the application? Well, just like the chief priests and the Pharisees, it's easy for us to get into the mindset that we know what God is doing. In fact, sometimes our definition of what God is doing is what we want him to do. We get ahead of him and we start to think that even though we are saved by our dependence on Christ, walking out Christian life really is about how we live whether we're pious enough, whether we're righteous. We even get legalistic. We follow a pattern of behavior rather than a pattern of faith and trust. Now, I want you to hear me when I say that I'm not here advocating for what is referred to as antinomianism. I'm not saying that we should live as if there's no law. The Bible, both Old and New Testaments, are uh, full of passages of how we are to live out our righteousness in Christ. But the thing is, it's not about our righteousness. Isaiah tells us, in fact, that our righteousness, our own good works, are like filthy rags. I'm not going to go into it because of mixed company, but the filthy rags that is, are alluded to by Isaiah, Isaiah, are something very graphic. Our hope is to be holy in what Jesus has done for us. But we are not to judge others who are walking in the Lord, but may stumble along the way. Instead of judging, we're to help one another. We're to encourage and admonish one another, always pointing each other to Jesus who is the author and perfecter of our faith. Brothers and sisters, we have been called by our Lord Jesus to live for him, trusting in his finished work on the cross, relating to one another and to the world as Jesus' emissaries, sharing the good news, and letting them see it at work in our own lives. And we come to this table because of the work of Jesus and we come with gratitude and hope for our place in his kingdom. Amen. Let us, this is the part of the service I don't usually get to lead, so let us um, sing together the Gloria Patri. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen.
Please be seated. Go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for your holiness, for your care for us men and women. What is man that thou art mindful of him? It's not a man that visited them. We thank you, Father. We thank you as you are a kind and gracious Father. You provide for our daily needs, for a place to live and the food that we eat. We give you thanks, Father, for all these things. Christ's name. Amen. Let us sing in adoration of the Lord. <laughs> 